0: Well, how many of you, by a show of hands, are fluent in more than one language? Anybody bilingual in here, trilingual? No? I took four years of German in high school. Why German? I, I don't really know. Uh, but let me be clear. I am not fluent in German. Uh, but my kids don't know that. So uh, <clears throat> there will be times where uh, at, at night we'll read books before they go to bed, and I'll open up the book, and I'll start reading in German. I'm not really reading the words in German. I'm just putting together words and phrases and stringing things together that I know. But they don't know the difference. They'll be like, no, 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 in English, in English. They think I can speak German, but I am not fluent in German. Fluency is the ability to speak a language easily and effectively. It's a language that comes naturally and without thought. So if you could be fluent in any language, what would it be? For me, I think it would be Spanish. At the church uh, we served at in Texas, we had a Spanish worship service, and I loved just going outside the doors and listening to them worship in Spanish and preach in Spanish. I didn't know what they were saying, but it was beautiful. I had the opportunity to preach a few times in that service And it was always amazing uh, how our Spanish minister would just take what I was speaking in English and translate it so fluidly and quickly into Spanish. Uh, Last year, uh, I went with a group from Bachelor Creek to Guatemala uh, to serve at Morning Glory, and a couple of us led a pastor's conference where Rob Courtney from Morning Glory would translate what we were saying from English into Spanish. And I got to know Rob that week, and I was talking to him about what it was like to learn Spanish, because he grew up in the United States, and so Spanish was not his first language. And he was telling me, he said, I knew that I was becoming fluent when I began to think in Spanish, where he understood the language enough where he didn't have to constantly translate between English and Spanish in his head, but he began to naturally think in Spanish and then would just speak his thoughts. And... In this series, we're going to learn how to be fluent, how to be gospel fluent. Gospel fluency is speaking the truths of Jesus into the everyday stuff of life. And to introduce this concept, we're going to spend some time in the book of Ephesians today. If you're familiar with Paul's writings, you know that there's a common theme where he will lay out the foundation of the gospel first, and then he'll explain the implications of the gospel. And we see this pattern very clearly in the book of Romans, in Colossians. We see it here in Ephesians. So in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, Paul reminds his readers of the goodness of God. He reminds his readers of the salvation that is theirs in Jesus Christ. And in these first three chapters, he doesn't tell them to do anything. He's just saying, here's what God has done for you. Here's your identity in Christ. Here here is who you are. He begins by establishing this gospel foundation. And then when you get to chapter 4, you notice there is a significant shift. In chapter 4, Paul now calls them to live out their faith. He says it's not just enough to know the gospel, you have to live out the gospel. In other words, you have to be gospel fluent. See, the gospel has legs. It moves. It inspires. It it causes action. The gospel is not merely doctrine to be believed. It is truth to be lived. Action always follows belief. Our obedience as Christians is always a response to God's grace. God acts first, and then we respond. And so we're going to look at this together in Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 1, and if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ." May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, the NIV translation, which we just read, doesn't capture this, the significance of this transition as much as the ESV does. The ESV translates verse 1 as, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It starts with the word, therefore. And whenever you read the Bible, whenever you come across the word, therefore, you need to ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore? In this context, therefore means in light of everything that's just been told you in chapters 1 through 3, make sure that you live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. In light of everything that's just been shared, who you are in Jesus, the goodness of God, the salvation that is yours. Make sure that your life reflects your belief. If God's love is so great, if His salvation is so powerful, if God has granted such incredible reconciliation, then we ought to live accordingly. We should value God's love enough to be shaped by it. What I want us to understand today is that the gospel saves you, sustains you, and grows you into maturity. The gospel saves you, but it doesn't only save you, it also sustains you. And the gospel is what grows you into maturity. We read in verse 13, Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then verse 15, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Notice that the word mature is used twice in those verses. And maturity is Christlikeness. That is the goal. The goal is becoming more like Jesus. It's it's union with Christ. And here in chapter 4, it's outlined how that happens. So I want you to notice first that committing to unity helps us become more like Jesus. Committing to unity helps us become more like Jesus. A Christ-like church is a united church. A church that is becoming more like Jesus is a church that is united. Now, whereas every Christ-like church is a united church, not every united church is a Christ-like church. Because it all depends on what we're united around, right? We read in verse 3, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort means be zealous, be eager. Unity is given by the Spirit. You and I do not create unity, but we are called to maintain it. All summer long, we studied the Sermon on the Mount together. And what we discovered in the Sermon on the Mount is how there is this already but not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here, but it's also coming, right? The kingdom of God is here now, but it's not fully consummated yet. And what I want you to see is that there is an already but not yet character to Christianity. In verse 3, we see that unity is a basis created by God from which we start, And then in verse 13, we see that unity is a goal to which we strive. So, unity is established by the Spirit. It's something that we are commanded to keep. And it's a goal that we strive towards. And the reason that we must keep the unity of the Spirit is because everything that you and I hold of any significance, we hold with other people. We read in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven items are mentioned here. And they all express the reality that there is just one gospel. And to believe that gospel is to enter into the unity that it creates. You see, Christianity is a shared faith. No separate or no merely individual faith exists, nor is there a different salvation. When when Paul says one faith, he's referring to the content of our faith, what we believe. That there's one gospel. There's one gospel that we are united around. And so I want to ask, do you value unity? Does unity in the church and unity among brothers and sisters in Christ matter to you? Because rather than to make every effort to keep the unity, it sure seems like the American church sacrifices unity at the very first airing of differences. And I want to be clear with you, Christians do not need to agree on every single thing to have unity. We need to be united around the gospel. We need to be united around the person, the work of Jesus. We need to be united around our common commitment to Christ. There's a principle, a saying that you may be familiar with. It's been attributed to multiple people. It's been attributed to St. Augustine. It's been attributed to John Wesley. We don't know who originally said it, but it's, In essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things love. Some of you probably heard that before. In essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things love. We must be united around the essentials of our faith. And I want to share with you why unity matters so much. Because unity is intertwined with mission. Our mission, given to us by Jesus, is to make and grow disciples of Jesus. And the mission of the church is crippled by the division that exists among Christians today. And unless we demonstrate unity, our witness doesn't deserve to be heard. Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would be one, as Christ and the Father are one, so that the world might believe. That's why unity matters. Committing to unity helps us become more like Jesus. Second, God gives us gifts to use to become more like Jesus. He gives us gifts to be used to become more like Jesus. We read in verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now, grace here does not mean saving grace, but it's grace for ministry. Paul could have said to each one of us, ministry has been given. And the gifts that Christ gives to the church are people to promote serving and building up. We commonly refer to these as spiritual gifts. And God has given every believer in Christ spiritual gifts to be used, as we're told in verse 12, to build up the body of Christ. And verse 11 lists some specific roles. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, preachers, and teachers. And not every Christian is a preacher or teacher. But every Christian has been given a spiritual gift. And whereas every Christian has a spiritual gift given by God, there is no Christian that has every spiritual gift. And you know what that means? That means that unity is maintained by variety and diversity. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 14, provide a list of the spiritual gifts. Do you know what your gifts are? Every couple of months we have Next here at Bachelor Creek. And and if you go through Next, you have the opportunity to discover how God has gifted you so that you can build up the body of Christ. What's the goal? The goal, remember, is to become more like Jesus. We become more like Jesus when we are using the gifts that God has given us to serve the church. Are you using the gifts that God has given you? 1 Peter 4, verse 10 says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms but even more than having a gift, I want you to realize that you are a gift to the church. The church is better and the church is stronger when you're a part of it. You need the church and the church needs you. Which means gathering together and serving one another and worshiping together is really important. God gives us gifts to be used to become more like Jesus. Third, Notice that speaking the truth in love helps us become more like Jesus. Speaking the truth in love helps us become more like Jesus. If you jump down to verse 14, you see that there are ways that we try to grow in Christ, but but fail. It says, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. That describes immaturity, not maturity, right? This is a person who is easily deceived. Paul pictures a guy who doesn't know where to find the source of truth. He doesn't know where to find the source of life, and he's just repeatedly duped by frauds and tricksters. But then verse 15 describes the way that we actually do grow in Christ. It says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. Speaking the truth in love. And truth there equals gospel. Speaking the truth of the gospel in love, we will grow to become mature. Speaking the truth of the gospel in love, we will become more like Jesus. That means we have to have gospel fluency. I think the problem for so many of us is that we see the gospel as something that saves us. We see the gospel as a get-out-of-hell-free card, but little more than that. And when we take the gospel and we reduce it to something that only secures our afterlife, then we're missing out of of the breadth of its power. There are a lot of us who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we are not fluent in the language of our homeland. The gospel is the language of Christianity. Do you speak it fluently? You know, a lot of us, probably almost all of us, have a smartphone. And you can use a smartphone, you can use an iPhone to, to make phone calls, right? You can use it to make and receive phone calls. But if that's the only thing that you use that phone for, you are not using it to its fullest capability. You're not using it for all that it's designed to do. Uh, an iPhone can be used to send text messages, to send and receive emails, to take notes, to keep your calendar. You can use it to surf the internet. You can use it to watch videos. You can use it to record videos. You can use it to take pictures. It goes on and on and on about everything that, that this phone can do. And if you're just limiting it to, use, to making and receiving phone calls, you're missing out on all that it's designed to do. And for a lot of us, we think the gospel is something that we, can, we believe in so that we have eternal life. And while that is true, the gospel is so much deeper than that. The gospel provides us with, with much more than a future hope after we die. In the same way that, that an iPhone has many features, the Gospel has implications for every single aspect of our life, and most of us we, we don't speak the gospel fluently. I would say that our native tongue more closely resembles Christianese okay you know what Christianese is where, where we speak in religious phrases and jargon we give snippets of the gospel, but we, we think that we're speaking to the gospel to people, but they're not hearing it as good news. We use religious language that's divorced from people's reality. And as we talk about the gospel with other people, we're sharing elements of the gospel, but the people aren't hearing it as good news because they're not hearing the truths of Jesus applied to their lives and their situations. They hear words, they hear phrases, they hear propositions that don't make sense to their context, to their culture, and to their language. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody where even though they were speaking English, you had no idea what they were talking about? You were just lost. Uh, Not long ago, David Diener and I were in a meeting with an AVL company, an audio, visual, and lighting company. And there were a couple of sound engineers in this meeting, and they were talking about parts and equipment, and they were speaking in this coded language, and I'm just looking around at one point like, I don't understand anything of what you're talking about. Can you translate this into, like, dumb people's terms? Because this isn't making sense. But I've also been in conversations where, like, the opposite happened, where I'll be with some friends, and we're talking about baseball, and we're using terms like OPS and war and slugging percentage and run differential, and, like, my wife will hear us talking, and she's like, you lost me. Like, like, you lost me at OPS. And that sort of thing happens with the gospel all the time. Like, you'll, you'll see these street corner preachers, and they're yelling, repent or perish, turn or burn, and they think that they're being helpful, but people aren't hearing it as good news, or, or even for most of us. Like, we've got that family member, we've got that coworker who doesn't know Christ, and we want to share the gospel with them. And, and so we'll tell them that, that Jesus died for your sins, and if you believe in him, you can have eternal life. And that's right. That, that's true, correct? But, but that's gospel ish. We're not answering why does someone need to die for me? How does blood forgive sins? Like, what is sin and why is it a big deal? Why does it matter what I've done? How does a man who lived and died 2,000 years ago help me? And if all we do is reduce the gospel to this one aspect, then we're offering little consolation for people who are just struggling with day-to-day life. You've got the young mother that has three kids ages three years old or under and the kids aren't sleeping through the night, and she is exhausted, and she is frustrated, and she needs something real, something now to help her. You've got the drug addict who is so deep in his addiction that that man doesn't need to be shamed and doesn't need to be told that what he's doing is wrong. He already knows that. He needs to know that there is a God who loves him, and there is a God who has the power to break the strongholds of addiction. He needs to know that freedom does exist and it is possible for him. You've got the father who just lost his job and he feels like a failure. He feels like he's let his family down. He feels worthless because he can't even provide for his family. And just telling him, hey, your eternity is secure in Christ, that doesn't address his lack of self-worth. But if we were to speak the gospel into the everyday stuff of his life, We would tell him, listen, the gospel says that our worth isn't found in our career. Our worth isn't found in our success. The gospel says that your life is so valuable that God sent his one and only son to die on a cross for you. That's how valuable you are to God. The gospel says that we aren't defined by our failures. Or or the woman who's diagnosed with cancer. And she thinks that she did something wrong to deserve this. She thinks that this must mean that God doesn't love her. She needs to know that God created the world and everything was in a state of perfection. There was no cancer. There was no sickness. There was no death. But when sin entered the world, we now live in a fallen state. Where things like hurricanes, car accidents, and cancer happened. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't care. In fact, you know what the gospel says? The gospel says that God is redeeming and God is making all things new. In the words of C.S. Lewis, that one day everything sad is going to come untrue. You need to know that the gospel speaks into every one of these situations. But most people don't realize that. So what do we do? We need to see the gospel as the lens through which we live our lives every single day. Where it influences our thoughts, it influences our behavior, it influences our actions. Everything in our life is filtered through the gospel. You know, here at Bachelor Creek, we have a 10-year vision. And our 10-year vision states that we are a church of 1,200 that is growing deep and wide, that is leveraging our influence to have a daily impact for Christ in our community and beyond. And if that vision is to become a reality, if we are truly going to have a daily impact for Christ, then we have to be able to speak the truth of the gospel into the everyday stuff of life. And that's what we're going to work on in this series together. A few years ago, I led a college-age mission trip to Dearborn, Michigan, and there was um, two people in our college ministry who met. They started dating. They got married, and they both had a passion for uh, ministering to Muslims. And so they received training, and then they went overseas and served as missionaries in Jordan for a few years. And then they came back to serve uh, in Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, Dearborn, Michigan is the most predominantly uh, populated Muslim city in the United States. It's just outside of Detroit. And so they went there to work with an organization that attempted to reach Muslims for Christ. And so we took a group of college students up there to work alongside them and and to learn and and, and to grow. And one of the days on our trip, we went to a mosque to learn more about Arab culture and to understand more about what Muslims believe. And um, would you believe that the largest mosque in North America is three hours away from Wabash, Indiana? there was a group of uh, seminary students who joined this tour that we were a part of as we were getting shown through this mosque. And at the end of the tour, there was a question and answer time. And during this time, this group of seminary students just started attacking this tour guide. And, and, just, and I, very, they started debating. And, and very quickly, uh, it was obvious to me that they knew like five talking points on why Islam was wrong. And so it was, uh, here's what you believe and you're wrong. And it was just walls went up, and there was, there was nothing good happening of this. And so we, we left, and we went back to where we were staying, and the missionaries that we were with kind of debriefed and, and unpacked with us what happened that day. And then they gave us an assignment. They, they sent us in groups of three or four on scavenger hunts throughout Dearborn. And uh, we were to uh, go to different um, Muslim businesses and different landmarks and to have conversations and ask questions with people in the community. And it was through this exercise where we were forced to listen. And by asking questions and listening to them, instead of making assumptions, instead of answering questions that they weren't even asking, we began to really see what it was they believed we began to to tell what mattered most to them. We were able to understand what they valued. And it was through these conversations that I sensed that these were a people who were ruled by fear. You see, for them, Allah was not a God that you could know personally. For, For them, they had no assurance of salvation. In Islam, you had to live a good life, try hard enough, and at the end of it all, hope that Allah would show you mercy. And if that was my belief system, I'd be really scared too. I I thought back to those seminary students who were just attacking and, and, and they just completely missed out because they failed to speak the truths of Jesus into the everyday stuff of that man's life. And so as we wrap up our time together here today, I just want to leave you with two pieces of application very quickly. As we begin this journey together over the next several weeks, first... I want you to listen more than you speak. Listen more than you speak. That, that's good advice in friendship. That's good advice in marriage. But when it comes to the gospel, this is good advice. Ask questions before you give answers. Listen. And second, building off of that, seek to understand. Seek to understand. Oftentimes in conversations, we quickly jump to conclusions. Where we think we already know everything about that person, but that's just because we've made assumptions. The gospel speaks to every situation and circumstance, but we need to understand the gospel clearly enough. We need to be familiar and fluent enough with it to make the connection. And that's what this series is all about. Throughout this series, we're going to learn what it looks like to be fluent in the gospel. And so next week, we're going to look at what is the gospel before we can become fluent in the gospel, we have to understand what it is. And then from there, we're going to understand the implications of the gospel lived out in different spheres of our lives. We'll look at the gospel in our hearts, the gospel in our minds, the gospel with us, the gospel in our actions, and the gospel in our words. And what we'll discover is that Jesus is the motive and the power behind it all. The unity that we're called to maintain, the goal of becoming more like Jesus, it's all because of Jesus, and it's empowered by Jesus. It's not about self-help. It's not about what we can do on our own. It's all about Jesus. And so over the next seven weeks, my prayer is that our view of Jesus would expand, that our belief in his power would grow, that our love for Him would grow more and more as we grasp His love for us. I pray that we would be overwhelmed by His grace and mercy in our lives, and that it would humble us that God would choose us not just to believe the gospel, but to live it and to share it. Would you pray with me? God, I thank You that You have given us the gospel, And God, thank you that the gospel changes us. God, I pray that we would understand more and more what it is. I pray that we would be able to speak it. I pray that we would be able to to see it as the lens through which we view everything in life. And as we go forward this week, God, I pray that we would take a posture where we listen more than we speak. And God, I pray that we would seek to understand. Because God, you've given us a mission to go and make disciples of Jesus. You've given us the gospel as good news. And I pray that we can speak it in such a way that people hear it as the good news that it truly is. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.